Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing Elite Clubs National League, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky, and today on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, Jason Cutney, the fine commissioner for ECNL Boys, has booked two extraordinary soccer players, soccer coaches, and after you listen to this interview, two extraordinary people who are giving back to those in need pretty much every day. Jason, give us a quick preview on what we're going to hear. We have Greg Simmons and we have Boise Kamalo, two fantastic professional players that retired from the game a few years back, but have really taken their experiences as youngsters in Jamaica and South Africa, molded them into ways to really impact the game in entirely new ways and pass their opportunities on to others around the world. You're going to love it. Jason Cutney, Boise Kamalo, Greg Simmons, after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country, with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner, is going to run with this interview featuring Boise Kumalo and Greg Simmons. But before I hand over the reins to Jason, how about a little bit more on Greg and Boise? Greg grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. He moved to the U.S. in 91, where he was a high school All-American at Sherwood High School, got a full scholarship to Howard University, where he became their all-time leading scorer. He played professionally with Hersey out of college where he was the Rookie of the Year in 1999 with 18 goals and nine assists. He was drafted by the MLS's Miami Fusion in 2001, then went on to play a total of nine years as a pro, including stints with Rochester, Charleston, Virginia Beach, and the Puerto Rico Islanders. Greg is the owner of Own Touch Soccer and Futsal RBA. He is also a USSF A licensed coach and a coach for Richmond United of the ECNL. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for having me, man. Looking forward to it. All right. My pleasure. And Boise Kumalo brings a wealth of high-level college and professional experience to the youth and college after time at NAIA Power Lindsey Wilson College and NCAA Division I Coastal Carolina, as well as time in USL and the MLS. A native of South Africa, Kumalo came to the U.S. for high school and was an all-state selection in Kentucky before moving on to Lindsey Wilson. He earned the NAIA Player of the Year in 2001 as a freshman after leading LWC to the national championship, marking the first time a freshman had earned the NAIA's highest honor. Kumalo was named a first-team All-America selection and the most outstanding offensive player of the NAIA national championship as a sophomore. Following a move to Coastal Carolina in 2003, Kumalo earned a pair of all Big South Conference first-team honors in 03 and 04, while leading CCU to the NCAA National Tournament. A nominee for the Herman Trophy as a senior, Kumalo was the Big South Tournament Most Valuable Player in 2004. 
Kamala turned professional then and played in multiple U.S. leagues, including MLS, as well as back in South Africa, a graduate of Coastal Carolina with a Bachelor of Science in Physical Education. He holds an A license and earned an NCAA, now United Soccer Coaches, Director of Coaching Diploma. He is one of the founders of a nonprofit organization, and Jason will have more on that, that unites sports and education through the development of youth soccer programs. As I said in the open, both of these fine gentlemen, great players, great coaches, and even better people. And Boise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And with that, I'll turn it over to Mr. Jason Cutney. So excited to hear what you got here, Jason. Thanks, Dean. And, and look, with Greg and Boise, you know, two guys that I had the pleasure of playing with when I first started professionally in this country with the Charleston Battery. And Greg was kind of a big brother for me when I first got there. And Boise was kind of the annoying little brother when he arrived in Charleston. But then that kind of became our, uh, our dynamic here amongst the three of us. Top class players, people as well. We'll dive into that a bit here today. And I think we'll start with a question that it's very interesting to me, especially. And, you know, these guys both made their way to the U.S. as young men. And Greg, as you said, came to Maryland and Boise somehow ended up in Kentucky. I'm still trying to figure out how a South African ends up in Kentucky arriving in the States. We'll start with you, Boise. What ultimately led to your arrival into the U.S. as a youngster? And, and what was the one thing that you feel like it stood out about the differences between your new life in the U.S. and, and what you experienced growing up in South Africa? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I came to the U.S. with a team from South Africa. It was not a national team. It was just a team that was selected to come compete at the Master Card Tournament, uh, Sister City in Louisville. And uh, while I was there, there was a family that was looking to host a few exchange students. And I, I happened to be one of the students. And uh, I was supposed to be in the U.S. only for one year. But the, the family that I was living with, Susan and Dave, they asked me, hey, are you willing to stay and, and finish your high school? And then you can go back to South Africa. I decided, you know what? I need something new in my life. Decided to stay in the States. Now, let me back up a little bit, but when I was in South Africa, I always wanted to be a professional player. And uh, when I came to the States, I had an opportunity to study and become an, a, a professional player. So that's what kind of made me want to stay in the U.S. And uh, after my high school years, uh, of course, uh, I went to college and then I got drafted. And sitting back now looking at it, I think that was a good choice because I was able to get my degree and also fulfill my dreams of playing professional soccer. So what about you, Greg? I mean, obviously, you, you know, came from Jamaica, ended up in Maryland in a, in a, a soccer hotbed of an area there in Olney. You know, what stood out? I mean, Jamaica is obviously a great, a great footballing nation. It's part of the culture there and the DNA. And, and you come to Maryland you know, obviously a very different landscape where you're at, but what stood out as a, a major difference for you between life in the U.S. as you were starting to know it and life in Jamaica? One of the main reasons for coming to the U.S. was to get used to the, the school system with the goal of getting to college. So I had, you know, majority of my family that lived on my father's side lived in Maryland. So I had cousins that played soccer. One of them, Raymond Goodlett, was playing for the U.S. national team at the time. He was 16. When I was with Jamaica, he was 16. So my uncle reached out to my parents and said, listen, why don't you have Greg come up, finish up high school here and get used to the system? So I did that. It was tough at first. Obviously, I left home at 16 to come to the U.S., which is a little bit different. Jamaica is more laid back and, you know, school systems are outside. It's like colleges here. You go to class and you walk back outside. So it was a big adjustment for me coming here to, to the high school where you're inside most of the day. That was very challenging. It was tough. But, you know, as part of the journey, parents told me leaving home, it's not going to be easy, but it, it, 
you will pay the rewards at the end. You look back and appreciate it. So that's how I got here. Obviously, the journey has been amazing so far just for the opportunity. But the, the difference is, obviously, Jamaica is a third world country. It's a lot more laid back. You know, soccer is, is the number one sport. So that's all we do every day, all day. We're, you know, I grew up playing in the streets. I'm sure Boise had an experience which has molded me to the coach I am today and, and where my passion is, is more on the technical side. All my experiences from a youth until now, you know, coming to the U.S., which a lot more organized, a lot more structures, balance me as a, as a coach, as a person, as a, you know, as a dad, as a husband. So it's, it's been very good. So Craig, you, you know, you, you got here in 91 and that, you were in your 40s at that time, I would imagine, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you've yeah. been here for some time, right? But you, you've, seen, you've seen the game evolve in the U.S., and so specifically thinking back on your childhood in Jamaica, and as you said, they're just kind of growing up in a more unstructured environment, playing in the streets, different level of resources and opportunities being made available to you in Jamaica versus the U.S. What do you think has been the most meaningful advancement in the game of soccer in this country since your arrival? Well, the biggest thing is um, when I, you know, when I got here, the, the passion for the game was there. Obviously the kids, a lot of kids were playing I wouldn't say the passion was exposed at the parent level obviously the parents were you know their kids were going to games so they'll take them but the biggest difference for me leaving Jamaica here was just how organized things were and to the point where I think it was a little bit too organized to the point where it's so structured and kids would just go train twice three times a week and play a game on the weekend and it wasn't a lot based on individual development so with my background in Jamaica, where it wasn't organized, my goal was to try and balance that in the middle, where it's a little bit more creative freedom with organization. So that's kind of where it is now. But for me, I mean, you, if you want to talk about where the difference is from when I moved here to today, it's night and day. The coaching quality is much better. The player pool is much better because the passion is there. The games are on TV every day. So there's a lot more viewing for the kids to watch and, and players to look up to. So for me, it's, it's, it's night and day because... You know, players are more, for me, I think players are spending more time with the ball other than just with their team setting. So that's that's one of the big difference for me, but it's really blown up in the U.S. Boys, you grew up in South Africa, obviously came to the U.S. around the same age as, as Greg. You were in teenage years and entered into the high school environment. You were always very, uh, and I think when I first got to know you, what stood out was that you were always very creative, just trying things on the ball that were outside of the ordinary. And for me as a defender, it was interesting because it's certainly through training sessions in Charleston. I always thought that first year that we were together with, with the battery, we had a very, very good veteran team and the training games were probably better than a lot of the games that we played in, in the league that year. But you were one of those players that was tough to defend against for a number of reasons, mostly because your speed and just the, the, unorthodox moves that you had with the ball. So where does that come from? You know, is that something that you just think from, from your early days in South Africa, from just playing in unstructured games? Is that where that stuff comes from? Or is that from watching other players around you while you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, I would say that comes from uh, me growing up in South Africa. And uh, first of all, you also got to understand in South Africa, when we had a ball, there'd be like 50 guys just want to touch a ball. The minute you got the ball, you had to show the other kids what kind of skill you had. And, you know, we use different things for a ball. So we use a tennis ball. We use things like an orange to juggle up an orange and get a soft so you can get the juice. So all these things were creativities that came within us playing in the streets. And for me, it was, it was good because if I saw somebody do it a, a trick, I will go back home and try to do the same trick to, to try to mimic them. And also watching TV, watching 
top players in South Africa at the time, like your Dr. Kumalos, if they did something spectacular, our job was to go back on the street and, and, and see if we can create that moment. And uh, I think soccer now in the US has grown so much compared to when I first got to the States. When I first got to the States, I mean, I remember just my high school game, there'd be like five people and two dogs. And, uh, you know, it was not fun to play in front of those people. But for my parents, Dave and Susan, they always supported me. And that's another thing I want to touch on because growing up in South Africa, my parents were not able to, to come watch my games because they were always working. And then when I moved to the States, Dave and Susan will drive all the way to coastal Carolina from Kentucky, which is like an eight hour drive. So for me, I was kind of shocked. And as a kid, it was hard for me to understand when growing up in South Africa, I would play like two minutes away from my house, but my parents would not come support me. Whereas if in, a, in a America, I'm playing eight hours away and they're supporting me. But as I got older, I started realizing that you know, it's different lifestyles. You know, in South Africa, my parents had to work all the time. Whereas if in the U.S., uh, Dave and Susan were able to travel on the weekend to come watch the game. So I think the game has grown a lot. And as you can see now, a lot of teams have stadiums, of course, the Pittsburgh River Hounds. So it's a good thing for, for, for the nation. Another thing is that uh, back in the days, most of the players wanted to go to college. Now, if you look, most of the players want to go play professional soccer. I mean, you got guys from the U.S. playing for Barcelona, Juventus. So I think that's a big, big goal. And that's what most players want to do now. Greg, we'll turn to you on the family side. You know, Boise said, obviously, family, and, and his, in this case, is a new extended family for him in the U.S. was a big part of his settling in process and just getting comfortable and, and seeing a, a, new, a new lens, seeing game, the game through a new lens, I should say. You, know, you moved to the U.S. and were able to meet up with family that was here. How big do you think that role was that family played for your development and, and your ability to kind of settle in to the U.S. culture? Yeah, that, that was it was massive, again, because I moved in with my cousins, which was four boys. I was the fifth one. We all played. So my uncle was a you know, soccer dad and the, my, my aunt was a soccer mom. So we were just I, – I just fell right into the system right away, was playing games on the weekend and, you know – Mom's going this way and my uncle's going that way. And we just carpooling with different people. So I jumped into the U.S. youth soccer system right away. So it was a, it was easier transition for me um, when, it, when, it, you know, when it comes to that part of it. The game itself was different because of all the traveling. I wasn't used to that. In Jamaica, everything was in Kingston, which was, you know, 10 minutes away from each, each game. But the traveling was a big piece. You know, I look back now and I ask my uncle, I don't know how he did it. I just don't know. We had five boys playing and we didn't miss a game. We were never late, never missed training. Always, you know, had, had cleats on. In Jamaica, you have one cleat for the whole year. Here, we're just getting cleats every other season. So um, it was good. It was, you know, again, I was lucky uh, to have my actual parent, my um, extended family here. Um, that was already in the youth soccer system. So it was an easier adjustment for me. So when you when you guys each respectively then and, and maybe we'll go, kind of go with Boise first and then you Greg, when you went to the the college level of the game, all right, just at that point you go and you're starting to figure out I think in life in general what you want to accomplish, right? Beyond the game of, of soccer sometimes and also within the game and college is a great time where you can figure yourself out and and pursue those goals and really in, in some ways set them for the first time. Was professional soccer always the goal or is that something that you think built up within your just 
your life uh, through knowing that you were good on the field, through accolades, through people seeing and saying that you're a top player. Was that always the target for you or is that something that you think just, just built up over time? For me, it was always the goal. I mean, uh, growing up in South Africa, everybody wanted to be a professional player. So when I came to the States, my goal was to be a professional player. And of course, when I got here, I did not know a lot about the MLS and all these other leagues that were happening at the time. But my goal was always to, to, to be a professional player. And uh, when I came to the States, I found it hard to be a professional player because back in those days, it was a college system for you to be seen. You had to go to college for professional teams to see you. And also another thing, you had to attend combines to be seen. So that kind of made it difficult for me. But to answer your question, I always wanted to be a professional player. How about you, Greg? I knew from a young age that soccer was my sport. And I knew, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't know if I would say in Jamaica, I wanted to be a professional um, because back home, it, obviously for, there wasn't, there was a professional league, but that's, you know, it's not really a professional league. And, you know, in Jamaica growing up, we only had one, one channel, which is, you know, you probably get a English league FA cup game on a Sunday. We call it international football, which was like a, a, a two hour show on Sunday. So we didn't, I wasn't exposed to all these professional leagues. Um, to really have a passion. The World Cup was one of the biggest things. Obviously, we wanted, you know, we had players that you wanted to be like. You know, after playing with, you know, the youth Jamaican national teams, um, getting a little bit more exposure and hearing, like we play against Mexico U-20s and heard some of these kids are professionals. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, moved to the U.S. And, you know, when I moved to Maryland, D.C. United was, wasn't around yet, but then it, you know, it came about and they were winning championships and I used to go to the games. I'm like, okay. This might be something I would want to do. Um, and that's where my passion for that grew. And then from then on, I just said, listen, I want to be a professional player. If I'm not a professional player, I'm going to be in a game as a coach, as an owner, as a director or something. But I knew um, soccer was my way. Um, there was no other way for me to live without the game. So, um, you know, I think after her, before in college, you know, scoring all those goals, getting success, and, and people are saying, hey, you have a future. Um, that's when it really grew for me uh, in college. And my goal was definitely work hard and try to get to Europe, obviously, like every every soccer player's dream is to play in Europe. But I think the DC United piece is what really clicked uh, when I went to these professional games. And I was like, man, I can see myself playing at this level. Um, so I would say college is where it really clicked in for me. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Jason Cutney with two brilliant gentlemen, Greg Simmons and Boise Kumalo. We'll be back with more of their connections to the ECNL and more about how they are giving back in big ways. Stay with us. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. 
Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Jason Cutney, our ECNL Boys Commissioner, alongside Greg Simmons and Boise Kumalo. Take it away, Jason. Thanks, Dean. So, I, you know, before the break, we, uh, we got a good sense of these two guys, right, and, and where they're from and how they made their way to the U.S. and really just understanding the opportunities that each of them not only were given, but created. You know, in many respects, and so I, I think we'll we'll kind of dive into these a little bit more now. So I'll go back to you, Boise, with this next question. You know, your story is certainly one of a, a steady upward climb. You went from all-state high school recognition in Kentucky, unprecedented accolades as a freshman and sophomore at Lindsey Wilson, more of the same at Coastal Carolina. Although I I still think that was because of Joseph Naguenya. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> and then you went to the USL, and then before you know it, the MLS. And so as a player, just it was up and up and up. And now, obviously, climbing through the coaching ranks, club soccer, collegiate soccer, I'm sure the future is going to be robust beyond this. You know, so through all this, I have to imagine your experiences have shaped not only the person you've become, but just the passion for giving back to others who also need a chance. So a few years back, you founded the Umlava Vision Foundation. You were hitting me with text messages left and right, asking me for uh, my ideas and everything else and sharing me with me logos and what I thought about them. And I didn't know where you were going with it at first. And then all of a sudden it all clicked for me as I saw you send some pictures from your work back in South Africa and, and really some of the amazing stories of kids that you were helping. Talk us through this. I mean, how does, how does this all come about? What, what were the main motivations in forming this foundation? And what is the main root of all of your passion being poured into at this point? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I started the foundation in 2007 when I moved back to South Africa. And uh, when I moved back, I already had like my degree in uh, recreation and sports management. Uh, when I got there, I used to lock myself in a room and and I used to watch and look around South Africa and saw that, you know, a lot of people don't have, don't think outside the box, you know, they just do what's given to them in South Africa. So I worked with the group Football Dreams. That was a group that was helping kids from Africa to, to go to Qatar to, to play soccer. And then that's where it clicked, you know, for me to, to come up with the foundation. So I started the Umtlaba Vision Foundation to give back to the community because most of the players, again, like I grew up, you know, I always wanted to be a professional player. I never thought of going to school or anything like that. So we started the foundation with two of my uh, good friends. We started talking to families in the States while I was in South Africa. So the first player that we brought to, to the States was Lyndon Fekker and uh, he played in the USL. He came to the States and when that happened, it kind of opened eyes to, to, to us as a foundation that, hey, we can do more than just sending one kids to the state. Um, Lindo attended USF, uh, he got a full scholarship and he's currently playing for USL. The foundation for me, it's hard to talk about because we do a lot of things, not just giving back to, to, to soccer players, but we also wanna empower our South African youth. Uh, just this uh, December, I went to South Africa and what I did was run clinics uh, for coaches, players, 
and also giving away soccer balls because most of our players, they struggle with soccer equipment. Um, you find that a team with 50 players, they have two balls. And uh, also with our foundation growing up, I also started connecting with different people like yourself, Charity Ball, which is one of the big sponsors. They help donate balls to South Africa. And by getting those helps from the, from the US, it kind of made the foundation to keep going forward because then we're able to have the soccer equipment that we have now and you know, kids can play and try to get the kids off the street. That's amazing. I mean, it, it's certainly admirable what you've been able to accomplish in, in a short period of time. And you know, I, I still kind of think back on the early days of when you shared the first logo ever and to see where it is now and, and see all that you've been able to accomplish. It's, it's a testament to everything that obviously turned you into a professional player as well. It's just hard work. It's, it's just getting after it. And I think Greg, probably in many respects, can understand and appreciate that in building small businesses, you know, and, and when you're in small business, you feel every single hour and every single day in that life and making payroll a couple of times a month is, is sometimes the, the biggest challenge for a small businessman. But Greg, you've been, you've been successful in building businesses within Richmond, own touch soccer, futsal RVA, and clearly a big part of your success lies in how you genuinely help people around you. Right. And I, I know that as a player, when I first got to the pro level, as I said earlier, you were kind of that big brother. You put the arm around me and, and helped me acclimate into that world. And I, I can see that that's what you do with the players that you work with. You've had a number of top level players come out of the DC RVA area and go on to play overseas right now. And you have several that are in the pro ranks that you've worked with as kids. So, you know, you've also stretched all that you've done and reached back to your roots in Jamaica as well. And similar to, to what Boise has done with Own Touch and RVA, both partnering with Balas International. I mean, Talk to us a little bit about that connection. How was that formed and how your different soccer communities are now coming together through the game to help families that are back in Jamaica? Yeah, well, again, so as, as boys can attest to, we, you know, we, were, we were two privileged boys that got an unbelievable opportunity to come to the U.S. And we have been blessed with a lot of resources and we've met great people like yourself. And we have a duty right now to give back to our, to our country because there's... You know, there's in Jamaica, there's these kids have nothing. When I say, I mean, we talk about poverty here in the U.S. It's like luxury in Jamaica. If that's if that's the level of poverty that we're talking about, it'll be, you know, the kids in Jamaica will be fine. Um, it was it's, so it's that bad. So it's a duty of mind, of mine right now is to, even though I have a small business and I'm doing all this stuff, my real passion and duty right now is to really give back to the needy and not just in the U.S. And we. I do a lot here in Richmond as well in the inner city because it's it's just part of who I am and part of my journey right now is, you know, my goal is to is definitely be a part of giving back to the youth. So I remember we started On Touch. I started On Touch in 2010. Um, within two years of starting On Touch, I decided to connect with Andre Virtue, who is the president and founder of Ballers International, which is a one of my best friends growing up. We went to college together. He was a captain at Howard University, you know, captain of the Jamaica national team. So he moved back home to start Ballers International. So we partner up a lot. I say he's the he's the man on the ground, uh, on the grassroots. And so I'm able to have him there and I'll just provide as much as I can, uh, which is every year we send we send balls down just like boys, the same thing. There's no balls, which is the main thing. There's no cleats, there's no soccer, socks and shorts and things like that. So I remember, I think it was two years into OnTouch, I just, you know, I spoke to a couple of the parents and said, I want to have a trip 
to Jamaica. I want to expose some of our, our kids in the suburban areas to what poverty really is. I know we've talked about it and we've shown them on TV, but it's nothing like actually being there and seeing it for themselves. So I was hoping to get maybe, you know, 10 to 15 of us to go down and bring some gear and expose some of our kids to Jamaica and what poverty is. At the end of the day, it was a hundred of us that went to Jamaica. I mean, we brought everything you can think of. We built a school. All our kids were involved building playgrounds. We had a clinic. We just went to our soccer field. I just remember this and it was very emotional. I went to our soccer field and there's no real soccer clubs. There's no real association, anybody to connect with to try and get kids to come to the fields. So we just went to the field and I think one kid saw us there and within 15 minutes, it was like, 100 plus kids just coming through the woods, coming through the bushes because they heard we were there. So we put on a clinic and we had a ton of gear and we gave that out. That was very, very emotional for me. So from then on, connected with, with ballers and it's been a year thing. Like I have a ton of stuff now actually from the ECNL, which um, helps a lot with this fund, with, with Andre's foundation. And I send gear and soccer balls down on an annual basis. So on the girls' side, soccer soccer's it's not as big on the girls' side in Jamaica. We're really trying to expand it. You know, Jamaica went to the World Cup, so there's a lot of talent there. So we're definitely helping on that side, and uh, you know, connecting with you know you guys, ECNL, to with the with you know girls' gear, especially on the girls' side, to help send some soccer equipment down for the girls, bras, you know, little details like that they don't have. So yeah, it's just been amazing, man. And um, you know, this is this is definitely a real passion of mine to really give back. And we do the same in, in the city here. We're, we're, we work with one of the local schools that we, we did a big Christmas drive because these kids go home in the winter with no food. You know, they only eat when they're in school. So we did a big Christmas drive and give Christmas gift and food for the kids in their break, two week break they have from school. So yeah, it's a lot of good things going on, man. And again, it's, it's so much more to do. And with all the resources, the, the plan is to continue to grow it. So what, what I will say with you then, what, you know, you took a group of kids down to Jamaica to experience something that I'm sure they weren't ready for. You know, I'm, I'm right. certain they were all excited to go down and, you know, go to a new place. And then all of a sudden the reality sinks in for probably how advantaged and privileged they are when you, yeah. when you go and face that. And Boise and I have spoken in the past about you guys have experiences growing up that I could never relate to. I grew up in a very ethnically diverse part of New Jersey where we all worked for everything. And I was, it was a mostly Hispanic area. And I believe that in my life, I've been much more open to every other demographic that exists within this country and, you know, religion and race and whatever, because of where I grew up. And I'm thankful every day that I grew up in an area like that, where I was able to appreciate so many different ethnically diverse cultures that I would have never been otherwise exposed to. And I think when you do things like that, when you bring families out of the U.S. and you bring them to Jamaica, but you, it's not on a vacation, right? You bring them to the real Jamaica and you show them what life is like there and they can draw that correlation between what's available to them and what's not available to other kids the same age, breathing the same air in a different part of the world. What do you think stood out the most to those players when they, when they really saw what was, you know, what life was like? And then I guess on the segue to that, what, when they got back to the U.S., did you see a difference in them? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that stood out to them is what, when we went to that, the soccer field and these kids were coming coming on the field to play with them and these kids had on only thing they had on was like a shorts and the shorts had holes in them i mean they had no shoes no shirt 
shorts. I'm sure they have no underwear on. And these kids were all smiling. So they came out with star soccer balls and they were just playing with these kids and they're smiling, having a good time. They weren't crying. They weren't stressed. They weren't begging for anything. They were just seeing kids to play and they want to have a good time. So I think that was biggest surprise, not just to the kids. I think the parents were shook up by that. Like they could not believe how these kids are so polite. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Thank ma'am. You know, appreciate it. And they were very nice kids and they were just smiling and having a good time. So I think that's one of the main things that stood out. And I know even today, these parents still look back and talk about that. Because I remember at the end, parents were going behind like trees and they're taking, I mean, parents left with no clothes, like basically taking their shirts off and wrapping up in a towel to go back in the bus. I mean, parents were giving away their, their clothes on their back. That's how significant it was to them. So coming back here, they now, these kids now, I talk to them all the time. They're more humble. They're more appreciative of what they have. They're more rounded. They don't look at color, race, gender, nothing. Because they were, they're, because they were physically exposed to people like that. They were good people. They were smiling. They were having fun. They were playing soccer with them. So that was the biggest thing that's done. Parents, even I think a couple of days ago, a parent, our kid is 25 years old now in college. I mean, not in college, in their in the professional world now, and she still talks about that trip. So, so that was the biggest thing that stood out to me is 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 the reaction of the parents, especially, and now they can still talk to their kids about that today, which was it's. A, I told them going there it was going to be a game changer, it's a life changing experience that not a lot of kids are, are are exposed to that. And I told them you're going there to help. We're going there to help these kids, but I guarantee you, one thousand percent, these kids are going to be helping you because it's. It's a two-way street, just like life. You got to give to give back. You have to give to get. And there's different ways. You know, it doesn't have to be material stuff. It's emotional. It's just getting to, to see another side of the world and seeing that everybody human. We all bleed the same color. It's all, we all one. And so that was kind of the vibe that I wanted. And that's the vibe that I want to try to always bring when I started on touching futsal is that we all one big family. It's not color, look where you're from, how much money is, none of that. That's not the culture that I, I know soccer is. And that's the culture that I try to instill in Richmond that this game is an international game for everybody. It doesn't matter where you look like or where you come from. So that's 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 the main reason for OnTouch is the, whole, the way it's structured is mainly on, you know, everybody trains together. It doesn't matter your age. You, a nine-year-old can train with a 14-year-old in a class. It doesn't matter if you're non-athletic or athletic. It's all a street vibe that everybody comes in and have a good time. So that trip really broke the ice and exposed, you know, it was probably 45 kids and their parents, and that changed their lives forever. Was it you obviously, you, you know, you've been involved with bringing young players, top players from South Africa, to, uh, South Africa to the U.S. So I'm, I'm kind of taking it from the opposite perspective now. You know, when you bring those players and help facilitate ways for those players to come to the U.S., what's the first thing that you have to help them understand when they're arriving in the U.S.? And, and you know, you obviously had a, a runway yourself to arrive as a youngster and come up through the U.S. and you've been here for years now. But what, what do you feel is the, the most important thing that you relay to these young players before they get to the U.S. and, and start to acclimate? I mean, the first thing that we do or the first thing that I do I go and meet these players and make sure that they are good people. You know, I, I don't just want to bring guys who are just good soccer players because we've done it in the past. You get a good soccer player and then he comes here, but he's not a good human being. So we want to make sure we get a first, uh, first a good person 
someone who, who is a good person. The most important thing for me when we bring him here is to make sure that they understand the American culture. You know, while I'm in South Africa, I go visit them and I talk to them and uh, I talk to them, for example, if we're taking a kid to, to a school, I want to make sure that they understand what the school is about, what the school looks like, what who's the coach. Uh, and I also get the coach in touch with the player. And the coach also has to understand where the kid is coming from because you cannot treat an African kid just like you treat a, an American kid. That's two different things. You know, you find that an African kid responds different to an, uh, a white person, for example, you know, because he's grown up in South Africa, he's not surrounded by white people, you know, and then you might find that the white coach has never coached a, a, big, a black player. So that kind of causes confusion. But like what I do is I make sure that these people are both on the same page. So once the player gets to the U.S., it's an easy uh, transition for them because I've seen players come to the U.S., they get here first year, they cannot adapt and they have to go back. And the coaches do not give the players enough time to adapt, then they send the player back. I think both the player and the coach have to be on the same page. And of course, with me being involved, I kind of understand the system and I understand both sides of, of the field. So I'm the guy to kind of maneuver and, and connect the dots for them to, 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 to be successful. You're hearing the wisdom and the passion, the commitment of Boise Kumalo, Greg Simmons, two outstanding guests from Jason Cutney, the commissioner for ECNL Boys. We'll be back to wrap up our time with Boise and Greg after this quick message. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. What a special treat. Boise Kumalo, Greg Simmons, joined by Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner. Jason, I'm truly enjoying this. A special show indeed. Take it away. So before the break, Greg started talking a little bit about the, the women's game. And it's interesting because Greg's oldest daughter, now Cameron, recently made her commitment to uh, University of Tennessee, class of 2022. She's an ECNL player for Richmond United. Uh, so first and foremost, congrats to, to you, Greg. And I'm sure I, I talked to you that day, I believe, when it was announced on social media and, and the proud papa certainly, uh, certainly came out, which was great to see. When you think about the women's game and you think about the opportunities that Cameron has, for instance, through ECNL and in this country, and you think about the NWSL and the draft that just took place and you know, players like Katarina and others that are going overseas now and, and doing well professionally, how do we bridge the gap in your opinion, with all that's going on around the world of soccer and all the development that's taken place in the U.S., how do we help women's soccer in Jamaica, for instance? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different market. It's a different model than when you're looking at the European model, when you're looking at, you know, what's going on in the U.S. How do we actually help the game develop in Jamaica on the women's side? Oh, well, that's a, that's a very good question, man. That's one of my... Um... That's a question I ask myself because I want to be a part of that. I like to start from the grassroots of everything. I don't, I don't believe in like reaching out to the JFF, which is the Jamaica Football Federation, and start working from the top down. I believe in always starting from the bottom up 
Um, and that's where the grassroots comes in with, with Ballings International. It's starting to use players from eight years old, eight girls, eight-year-old girls, and giving them the proper um, direction and, and let them understand there is a future in this game. And then we create that passion there. And then obviously we'll be working with the local leagues and, and JFF at some point, but is really getting to these younger girls and, and let them know there's a way out of Jamaica. There's, there's an opportunity for you to use a game of soccer to expose yourself and also give you a, a, some more options in life. Um, because I can tell you this, Courtney, you probably know there's so much talent on the women's side in Jamaica, in the in everywhere. You know, girls are. I'm I'm a obviously selfishly. My daughter is is a is you know she played she plays and she's very competitive and I don't see much different between some of these girls and some of these boys. There's a stigma that they're girls, so girls soccer or girls sports is less than, which to me it's not. It's, it's really start from the grass, which is I'm working with Ball International to, to do this, which is basically start from grass, which is just sending girls' equipment down, girls' jerseys, girls' training kits, girls' balls, and, you know, different things like that and get the passion and expose them because there's not a lot of exposure. The World Cup, the Women's World Cup was there, but it was there and it's dead. Like, there's nothing... Lead, no, the JFF didn't take it to another level and exposing it and exposing more girls and having even the local in, the girls that actually went to work up, not even going into the communities and talking to these girls. So there's none of that. It's, um, so that's where my resources and my passion is to really connect with people like yourself and ECNL and different organizations. So just get down there with the grassroots first, because once we get to the kids and give them some vision, some some ideas, and, and some opportunities. The sky's the limit because they're hungry, they're talented, and they just want an opportunity to get out. So that's that would be my my way of trying to um, give back is just you know start from the start from the bottom up. Well, if we we'll mark this day on the calendar, and if ten years from now we uh, we see a major jump in production of female players come out of Jamaica, hopefully uh, I'm sure and confident that. Greg Simmons will have been a part of that process because I know what you've put into everything that you've done in your life. And now you've got, uh, you know, seeing things through the female lens with your daughter and, and her success. I'm sure you guys will be a part of that. And I'm looking forward to seeing that because I've learned a lot, especially in my last life with Pittsburgh and signing a lot of players from around the world. You know, I learned a lot about Jamaican culture and I learned a lot about the difference between a player from Jamaica and from rural Jamaica. And that was one yeah. of those things that, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand what that really meant until I got involved and, you know, they meeting some of the amazing athletes that come out of Jamaica and learning that they just need an opportunity, a chance, you yeah. know, and, and this is what you've, you've done your whole life. And now I, I hope, I hope to see you do it more on the, on the female side as well. Boise and I have a, an interesting background together in the sense that I was fortunate enough to be put in a position with Pittsburgh where I was able to, facilitate him coming back to the U.S. after he went back to South Africa. And there was, you know, he was here in the U.S. when we played together and then he was back and, and I got involved in the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and in an executive capacity and was able to sign him and go through his immigration to get him back to the U.S. And, and I, I remember talking to him prior to bringing him back and it was obvious to me that he needed to come back to the U.S. This, you know, for, for a number of different reasons. But I always say the number one reason was for me, a friend helping a friend and really on the talent side of things, a friend looking at a friend who was better than him. I knew that he was boys. He was a better soccer player than me. 
I admit that now because we're way down the line, so I don't have to live <laughs> and hear about it in the locker room anymore. But he was a player that was going to go on to the MLS, and I knew that he just needed that that opportunity, that piece of rope to climb, and that was what was available to me at that at that point in my career. And you know, now I look at Boise and I see him again continuing to climb and climb and climb. And I'm interested, Boise. You've now done a lot as a player. You're doing a lot philanthropically through the the foundation. Now you're in the coaching ranks. So I had the, the question has to be asked, what's next for Boise? What, where are the aspirations for you in the coaching world? I mean, as a coach or as a person, you always have dreams, you know. As a young player growing up, I wanted to be a professional player. Guess what? I became a professional player. Now that I'm not playing anymore, I had ambitions to, to become a coach. I started coaching at the youth grassroots level, and uh, I've been doing that for a couple of years now guess what? Now it's a different goal. Now I have a different dream. Now I want to get into the professional ranks and for me to get in the professional ranks, trust me, it's not going to be easy. I have to make sure I get all my credentials and always put myself in a spot where I know I'm working with older players. And what I mean by older players, not just boys or girls, but like the whole entire uh, group of people who can be able to, to help me succeed my goal. I guess to answer your question is my next step is to get involved in a pro setup, whether it's in a youth or it's in a professional game. That's what I'm looking forward to. And I think a big part of that obviously is being able to spot talent. And so, you know, Boise, it's interesting because you were the one that introduced me to players like Tyler Pasher and Lebo Maloto. And those are guys that have come on to the U S and done very well. Tyler just signed a contract to move on to the MLS now after spending some time in the USL. Why is that? Why, why are you, you know, and I always, I'm always interested in this question when it comes to spotting talent in soccer. Why are you better than others? And I'll ask you to brag about yourself, which you were always <laughs> really good at as a player. No, but why were you good at, why are you so good at finding talent? What is it? No, again, it goes back to, you also got to understand the person, you know, like you also got to talk to these people and see what they want to do. Um, I remember when I saw Label. Uh, I was like, this guy is good. He deserves to play uh, at the higher level. And uh, Tyler Pasha and I used to play together. And uh, when Tyler was young, you know, he would just get the ball and just dribble. And I had to sit him down like, hey, listen, man, if you want to make it in the professional range, you can't just get the ball and start running. Yes, you are quick and everything, but you have to pick moments when to go forward. And uh, again, you're talking about seeing or having an eye for talent. I mean, I grew up in South Africa watching a lot of players who were better than me, but they never had the chance to, to, to make it to the next level. And then another thing, when I got to America, and I think you and I had this conversation a long time ago, and we talked about Messi as a player. And I, I told you that if Messi was in America at the time, he would not be playing for Barcelona, simply because he's small and nobody rates him. And you look at American soccer, and then you look at the college soccer, Everything is about lifting weights, the bigger, the faster player. Those are the players who play. Nobody is skillful, none of that. So for me as a coach and as a guy who loves the game, I like to see skillful players, people who can do things with the ball, people who can get out of situations because they are creative. So that's what I like and that's what I have an eye for. We've done well in that regard and I've, I've benefited and the Pittsburgh Riverhounds have benefited from, uh, from that over the years of you passing on talent to us. So I appreciate that. I'm sure you'll bring that to another club 
in the near future here. And it's good for me to hear that you're putting yourself out on the market to go for a, a pro coaching job because I think you'll get there at some point here soon. I'll kind of finish with one more question for each of you. And it's going to be one that asks you to dig a little bit deeper. But if you think about your trajectory, you know, everything that you've been able to accomplish since the youngest days to now, if you each had to point to one person that is the reason you are where you are today and is as successful as you become, the one person has motivated you to get to this point, who is that person and why? We'll go with Boise first. Greg's a little bit older. He needs more time to think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, that's not a it's, a, it's a, it's a tough question because so many people have been involved in my life, helping me out, yourself included. But uh, I'll say, I think my life changed when I first moved to the States, uh, living with my host family, Dave and Susan. I mean, they taught me everything till today. I'm still learning from them. Uh, and also they, they opened the doors, you know, they made me believe in myself. They made me to be somebody that I never thought I would be, you know, by them just welcoming me to their house and, and treating me like their own. So I would say those are the people who have really made a big difference in my life. And I really appreciate that from them. What do you got, Greg? Yeah, I'm on the same boat. I'm trying to find one person, but there's, there's so many. It started, as, as Boyd said, started from just my uncle having me in his home with four of his boys and my aunt, you know, four boys, and I'm the fifth one, and giving me and treating me just like their own. And that gave me my start. That gave me the opportunity that my that I want to give to other local Jamaicans now is is come to America and there's the sky's the limit. You choose what you want to do. But yeah, that my uncle and my aunt definitely. Um, but then it's you know I have coaches from the past, current coaches. Bob Lilly was was a big one for me. And the Hershey, the two years at Hershey was was definitely let me realize who I am as a person and as a player. So Bob Lilly was definitely played a big part in my professional career. I wouldn't say it's one specific, uh, but just it's just it's just as as my grandmother always say, it takes a village, and it took a village to really help me to where I am today. So it's hard for me to just say one person. Obviously, my current parents that's in Jamaica that gave me the opportunity to let me leave Jamaica at 16 years old to come here. So it's so many different people cutting. It's very hard to to pinpoint one. But if I'm if I'm gonna really pinpoint one, it'd be my uncle and aunt in Maryland that took me in as a kid. Fair enough. Now, listen, before we say our official goodbyes, I always like to promote. So we'll start with you, Greg. If you could promote your outreach program and then Boise, do it as well. And what I mean by that, where can people learn more and maybe where can they even contribute? We'll start with you, Greg, and then go to Boise. Well, I have um, two, two soccer um, entities on touch with some more technical training academy where you know, kids just pay a monthly fee and they can train every day with different age group, different size um, um, every day. So it's just one flat fee set up just like a gym. We have an indoor facility, classes on the hour. They can come in and train. We also introduce a game of futsal, which is a big part of, I believe, a big part of every youth development program. That should be a big part of it. We started Futsal VA, which we have a ton of kids from all the local teams in Richmond coming together, playing a game of futsal. So before Richmond United was created. So I think Futsar VA and Own Touch really brought the community together um, with kids from different clubs were able to train and compete together through Own Touch and Futsar VA. 
and that really helped the community. So for me, it's really, you know, my, it's own touch, a lot of donations. We have boxes throughout the facility that parents can drop gifts, um, use equipment off. And these are what we use to you know, ship to Jamaica or locally in the local clubs here, local inner city clubs here in Richmond. So that's it for me. Fantastic, Greg. And Boise, promote as well, please. Tell us how people can get involved. You can get involved with us by going on uh, Twitter, UVF2016, also on Instagram as uh, Umslaba Vision Foundation. And uh, we also have our own website, umslabavisionfoundation.com. We will certainly link those things in when we promote the podcasts here uh, that everyone's listening to. I, I do want to take the moment here to thank both Greg and Boise for just being themselves, right? For, for being good friends to me over the years, for being two of the best people in soccer that I've come to know over the years, and for being people that are now certainly instrumental in building the game in different ways, right? Not just helping to improve players on the field, but providing opportunities to players to open their eyes to what's out there in the world, to opportunities that they themselves may not have been given as young players that, that can now pass it on to the next generation. And you know, these are the people right here. These two guys are the epitome of why the game continues to grow in the U.S. It's great to say that knowing that it's a Jamaican and a South African that are here growing the game in the U.S. because that's what the U.S. is. It's, it's a melting pot of all the greatest people around the world coming together and, and bringing ideas to bring things forward. So I certainly appreciate the friendships that I've uh, established with these guys before this podcast started, before the recording started, we got all the bad jokes about Boise out. We will try to find a way to release those in the near future, but those will be as part of a separate podcast. But thank you, Dean. It was certainly my pleasure to be part of this again. All right. Well said, Greg and Boise. Thank you so much for being on. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Good luck to everything. All right. We'll see you in two weeks when two-time national champion for Duke basketball and longtime NBA veteran Grant Hill, a friend to the game we love, the game of soccer. Grant Hill will be on two weeks from today. It's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.